So we're right in the middle now of this uh, series, this new series uh, for the new year, where we've been talking about the things that are kind of essential components of, uh, of our church, the things that we think are, think are most important, things that are uh, generally characterizing what we talk about and what we do uh, all the time at Ascension. So just a quick recap again. Uh, the first week we started uh, talking about our basic creed. It's the basic stuff that we believe, and that's all shaped by who our God is, uh, the fact that we have a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the fact that this God is revealed to us in Christ and through Christ. So everything about Jesus is kind of the most important stuff that we're always talking about, talking about the gospel and who God is. That's what makes us unique as a group of people who are gathered uh, with, a, with a shared confession, with a shared creed, uh, we're gathered around this particular God, and we're, um, uh, the second week we talked about how this God calls us just to be together, just togetherness. Uh, it reflects who God is because the ultimate reality is uh, togetherness and a shared reality because our God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and before all things, he is uh, a God of communion. So he calls us into communion with him and uh, does so through the grace of Jesus Christ. So it's a pretty basic thing that we're called to do is just get together, keep getting together, Come and eat, right? Come and, uh, and share a meal with, with God. Eat God's food and get to know him. Just relational stuff. It's basic calling uh, that we're called to. And then thirdly, we talked about um, <clears throat> the basic conviction that we have, and everything is just centered around love, right? Real, mutual, uh, self-giving. Right? We give ourselves to one another and to God because he first gave himself to us. We love because he first loved us. Uh, we don't love perfectly. We know that we're... Um, uh, generally failures when it comes to real love, to, to actually reflecting God's love, but uh, by God's grace and through his love, uh, his love can be perfected in us in, in some small ways um, uh, uh, as we love one another. And so uh, love is our chief conviction here. And then, so today we're going to talk about our, our basic character. And uh, with all these things in mind that we've already talked about, who God is, what he's calling us to, this relationship with him, uh, the fact that this relationship is supposed to be um, one of love, that's what's supposed to characterize the whole world. Now, we're not the kind of people for whom that is natural. There has to be a big change taking place in our lives um, in order to uh, live as God wants us to live in this world and in this church, in relationships with him and with each other. So uh, we're going to talk about repentance and faith this morning. And that's basically a way, uh, you know, repentance, as we've already mentioned in the service, is, is turning away from the old way, turning away from sin, turning away from the way that leads to death and disintegration and disfellowship with God, and then uh, turning to God himself. And that turning motion um, is something that has to characterize all of our lives, all of our lives together especially. This is what we're here to hold each other to and help each other with, is that turning motion, right? Not the... Not the perfection or the, uh, the achievement of perfection, but just that turning. <laughs> that turning motion has to be regular and constant and has to characterize uh, the way that we are in this church. So we're not, um, as a church, you know, uh, we're not just good people. Everybody knows that. Uh, we, we're fooling ourselves if we think we are, or if we think that's really what our goal is, to just be good people. Uh, the world knows when it looks at the church, a bunch of hypocrites, a bunch of messed up people in the church, Right, but, um, but that's not what it means to be part of the church. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to be good people. It means we're supposed to be new people, always new, always becoming new. Right, uh, that, that new creation that God has worked in us, always giving that uh, um, 
uh, something tangible or visible uh, material, right? It's materializing this newness of the people of God. So we're always being renewed as a result of God's grace in the gospel. Um, and so that's what we're talking about this morning, repentance and faith as our, uh, as our basic character at this church. So <clears throat> let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, your word is good, and we're glad to have it. And it's, uh, it's really wonderful. And we pray that you would make us the kind of people who do wonder at your word, who are fixed and riveted in our attention on it, that uh, you would help us because these... Um, these things can be difficult for us to understand and uh, very difficult for us to, to see uh, materialize in our lives faith and repentance. And so we know we need that. We need a, a relationship with you that changes everything in our lives. And so we pray that you would give it to us by your grace as we consider your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the, gospel, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. <clears throat> so R.T. France is a commentator on uh, the gospel of Mark. <clears throat> and he says this, he says, Mark's readers, this is right at the beginning of the gospel, not much has gone on before this uh, point um, in the scriptures in Mark's gospel, and so R.T. France says, Mark's readers are being prepared not to expect the coming of God's kingship to conform to the conventional standards of importance. They're basically being pre prepared uh, to have their expectations overturned. Uh, here at the beginning of the, the gospel. So you've got John the baptizer, who's talking about the mighty one who's coming, who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, it says in the other gospels. Here's a great one, a mighty one. He's going to come and baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then along comes Jesus, simple Galilean, asking to be baptized with water, with a baptism that has already been explained as a baptism for repentance Right? A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he's coming to ask for that baptism. Okay. Um, at Jesus' baptism, then the heavens are torn open and the Holy Spirit flutters down on him visibly like a dove. And, uh, and God's voice thunders. 
You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Pretty majestic. And then the spirit immediately drives him out into the desolate places where he is... He's tempted by the devil. He does battle with the devil for 40 days without food. He's fasting that whole time. Uh-huh. Doesn't make sense according to our expectations. Then Jesus came preaching the gospel. He says, this is big news. The time is now. The time is now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then he just grabs a couple of poor fishermen off their boats and says, come on, you're with me. No big deal, people. Right? Um, this is not what we expected. Right? If you're a first century Jew, you're expecting the Messiah to be a great military deliverer. Somebody fancy. Somebody powerful. Somebody glorious and just obviously great. Right? Uh, to free you from Roman oppression. And then you get this baptism stuff. Baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and this, this uh, wilderness stuff, this temptation and the going toe-to-toe with the devil. And then the wandering by a remote lake, picking up people of no consequence. Simon, you know, it's renamed Peter, and uh, much of the gospel of Mark kind of centers on uh, him and his relationship with Jesus. Clearly, this guy struggles with loyalty and courage and being anybody important. Uh, Simon wants to be important, but he's just a mess up, right? Um, But Jesus took these very ordinary, unimportant men, and he made them some of the most influential men the world has ever known. And none of this makes any sense to us, given our initial assumptions, our initial presuppositions, and that's sort of the point of the gospel. And it's actually sort of the point of the whole Bible, right? This Christianity thing is not what we expected. This God is not what we expected. We naturally sort of have um, certain assumptions about God. We have assumptions about what he's like and what his, his work looks like in the world. We have assumptions about what his work looks like in our lives. And uh, we have assumptions about what salvation is and what it means to be a spiritual person. Assumptions about those things, and Mark, in his gospel especially, he very pointedly and constantly shows Jesus overturning all of our expectations. Our expectations were wrong. Right? We had one thing in mind, and the reality is quite another. And our whole lives will be spent realigning to the reality of God's kingdom. Right? The whole of our lives will be spent realigning from our previous expectations and assumptions about God to the reality of what he's really like, what his kingdom is really like. And that's repentance, that realigning, that, that turning, that converting. Uh, that's repentance. And John Calvin says, a quote in the beginning of the bulletin there for you, um, says that repentance is not merely the start of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. It is the Christian life. Um, and there's a, maybe that sounds discouraging to you, as if it's something you just don't want to talk about much anymore. Repentance leaves a bad taste in people's mouth, I know, because they think, you know, uh, of the, the street preachers with the sandwich boards that say, the end is nigh, repent, you know. Uh, you better change or else. But there's a, there's a real freedom 
in coming to grips with the fact that, you know what, we're just wrong most of the time. There's a real freedom that comes uh, from coming to grips with that. Uh, it's like the difference between taking yourself too seriously and being able to laugh at yourself, right? Um, it's that kind of freedom. It makes it easier to admit that we need to change. If I know, you know, I'm just probably wrong all the time. The things that I do, the ways that I think, the ways I feel about God, about relationship with him, about what it means to be a Christian and, uh, and live for him in this world, it's probably wrong. My expectations are wrong. If we can do that, it, it's easier to admit that we need to change. That's what our lives are supposed to be characterized by is real change rather than defending our untenable position or looking to justify our wrongness, right? um, holding on to uh, our justification in our wrongness. We need help. The Bible says everywhere we need serious help. We are in utter need of help all the time, and the Christian can say that. The Christian can say that out loud because the Christian knows that, um, that God will help. God will help us to change. The entire life of the Christian is one of constant upheaval and disequilibrium and restructuring and, and reforming and realigning according to his kingdom, the reality of who God is and what he's like and what his work looks like and what relationship with him is, is like. Uh, the whole life. It, and it's a whole life project, right? Everything in your life is up for grabs. It's not just that you need a little tweak here or there because mostly you're all right. Everything in life is up for grabs. It, this, this repentance thing is not just a tack on. You know, the disciples are called to leave everything and change everything and, and follow him and become the kind of people who are going to talk about this with other people, to become fishers of men, gathering other people into this new paradigm, this new kingdom, this new way of living, this, uh, this entire life full of repentance. Uh, the disciples are called to leave everything. Everything's turned upside down for them, and they become the kind of people who promote that, that same uh, upheaval in other people's lives. So repentance and faith characterize everything that we do here, everything that we talk about. Um, the liturgy, the, the order of worship, the things that we do on Sundays, it offers a compelling vision of reality, of a, of a kingdom that is unlike the kingdoms of this world, unlike the kingdoms that we expect or that we would create if we had our druthers, if we had the, the power to create our own kingdoms, um, the kingdom of God, the reality of what he's like and relationship with him is totally different. And, and liturgy, the worship service, is supposed to give us a picture of that, a compelling picture of that <clears throat> that will win our repentance, that will win us away from alternate versions of reality. Right? Uh, the table that we have, um, that we participate in every week, it, it fuels our repentance. It's the strength that we need um, in order to live a new life for God and with God. The community that we have, we have good community here. There's, there's good relationships. There's good uh, things taking place in our relationships. Community is life in the kingdom of God versus life in our own kingdoms, which would just lead to relational disintegration, right? The fact that we have any community at all. Uh, is, is, a, is a result of our repentance, and it's an opportunity for our repentance, for our continual together turning away from sin, turning toward God on a regular basis. We're mutually helping each other in our sanctification. Right? Sanctification is the big fancy word for 
learning how to love God better and love our neighbors better. Um, we're mutually helping each other in that, in that project, if you will. It's the, it's the corporate pursuit of repentance that we have at, at our church. Um, all of our activities, anything that we engage in, the way that we serve others or give, they're, they're all opportunities for us to live more in alignment with God's kingdom, to increasingly turn away from our own version of reality and live in God's version. Right? And so um, preaching is probably maybe the most obvious or noticeable of uh, ways in which you know, we, we preach repentance a lot. I talk about it all the time, and I apologize if it comes across as, so, as too somber or serious. Um, uh, if that's the main feeling you get, I'm sorry. Um, telling people to repent, uh, telling people to repent to recognize and stop their specific rebellion against God as he defines it. He tells us what rebellion looks like and says, now turn away from that. Right? Telling people to repent, it isn't condemnation. I'm sorry if it comes across like condemnation. It's not supposed to do that, right? Telling people to repent is not condemning. It's not being judgmental. It's not threatening. It's not threatening their good. It's actually working for their good. It's trying to tell them what is good and that they could align their lives with that through faith in Jesus Christ. For example, calling people to turn away from uh, sexual sin. It's a big one in our culture, right? Um, there's a lot of ways to engage in, uh, in sinful distortions of uh, human sexuality, but calling people out of that to turn away from sexual sin to the true and living God for fulfillment, right? Um, it's not at all the same as consigning people to a life of loneliness and misery because you just don't get to do that with anybody whenever you want to, right? It's not the same thing as, as condemning them and saying, now look, your, your life must be joyless because no more illicit sex for you. Right? Um, uh, condemning them or consigning them to a life without hope of real human flourishing. Uh, true human flourishing is only found in God's kingdom. It really is. And calling people to turn from sin, to turn to God, to realign themselves in their lives with God's purpose uh, is, is the only way out of misery and death. That way is misery and death. That way is good and life and blessing. You should make that switch, right? It'll be good. It'll be good. To the Christian, um, this might be hard to understand, the call to repentance should, shouldn't even be discouraging. It shouldn't even be discouraging. It shouldn't be heard as something like, you know, the end is coming, you'd better watch out, repent. Right? That's not the, the tenor that the call to repentance has in the scriptures. It shouldn't even be something that we grow tired of hearing. As if, come on, I've had enough already, stop talking about repentance. <laughs> right? It's not something that should discourage us or grow uh, irritating to us. It should be grounded in the gospel. It should be understood as a call to true joy. It's a pretty serious call to true joy, um, but it's a call to joy. Right? That's, that's what repentance is. That might sound foreign to you, especially if you're not a Christian, but it really is. Um, it's the insistence everywhere in the scriptures. All God's revelation insists on this, that your way, your own autonomous way 
apart from God. You're trying to define your life and pursue life on your terms. Apart from God, um, fun and right though it may seem to you, that's the way of death. It just always is. It's the way of death. The true way of life is with the true and living God. As uh, Tim read in Deuteronomy 30, you're supposed to choose life. It doesn't seem, it's kind of a no-brainer, right? You got death, you got life. Which one are you going to choose? Come on. <laughs> choose, choose life. Um, real love, real acceptance, real peace, and real security and real joy are found with, with God alone. C.S. Lewis says, God can't give us peace and happiness apart from himself because there is no such thing. There is no such thing as peace and happiness apart from the true and living God. So the Christian life is the constant rediscovery, the constant returning to this as we plunge deeper and deeper by faith into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? So true repentance... Repentance as it's meant to be, as what God defines it as in the scriptures, it's impossible unless you believe God's love for you. True repentance can't happen unless you first have faith in the gospel. That his love for you means that he knows what's best for you, and he really has that in mind for you. He really has that in store for you. Otherwise, uh, you're... You'll only ever be convinced that you and you alone know what's best for you. Right? Uh, and, and you'll never turn away from your own chosen version of happiness. Or if you do, if you think about repentance, you'll think about it wrongly. and You'll, you'll think uh, of it as it's, it's the stern, you know, you better do this or else. You better clean up your act, right? You better get your life together and try harder, which is all just guilt-driven, fear-driven stuff. And that's not what the gospel talks about. That's not real repentance. Faith is necessary for true repentance. Faith is necessary for true repentance. Why would we turn from sin to God when sin really has a lot of, it's attractive to us, has a lot of appeal? Right? Why would we make that turn from our reality to his reality? It's because of the gospel. Because, um, because his reality, which is the reality, real reality, is good news. It's good news. Right? Um, Tim Keller says that the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Yeah, things in us are pretty bad. But he's, he's so good. His love for us is, is real. It's true. It's everlasting. We're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. People like us. Right? And, uh, and so it brings us to our text. I mean, here's the gospel. Here's the beginning of the gospel. Mark says in, uh, I think it's the first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, the Son of God came into the world. Why would he do that? It's for love. It's because of who he is. He's, he's a good God. The Father sent the Son. The Son went willingly. He took on human flesh. There's something about that that just baffles us, that God would do that. But it, it's right in line with God's character. It really shows us what God is like, that he would do this for us. God is good. You don't have to be afraid of him. Right? You should want to be with him because he wants to be with you. Wonder of wonders. He, he wants to be with you. He sent his son into the world. The incarnation took place. 
And in those days, uh, he went to the Jordan, he, went, he was baptized, and as he was baptized, now we have the first and the clearest revelation of what God is like, of who God really is. It's the first time where you get the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they're all named, they're all right there together, acting uh, in each other's life, right? Like, so the, the Father's talking to the Son and the Spirit's descending on the Son, and uh, you get this really clear picture that God... These three persons of God, we're not sure how that works, but, but God really is a good being, one characterized by love. The Father delights in his Son, and he's pouring out his Spirit, the Spirit of love on his Son. And to be associated with that God, that's got to be good news, because this God, he, in himself, the triune God, he is good news. He's part of the gospel. The way things really are, you should want to be with this God, right? Um, so you've got the incarnation, you've got the triune revelation here, you've got baptism, which may be confusing to us if uh, we just don't have a great theology of what baptism means. Baptism basically is, uh, is the, um, the expression or even the manifestation of real solidarity, real relationship in the scriptures. It's a, it's a sacrament that we understand uh, it, it reflects or maybe even accomplishes in some sense our real union with Jesus Christ. And so here you've got all these miserable, sinful people who need to, to repent and have their sins forgiven. They need to be cleansed from their sin. And Jesus enters right in and takes their baptism and enters into solidarity with them. Um, wonder of wonders, again, that he would do such a thing. And, and he did it. He entered into a real union with us in that he, he didn't need to repent. He didn't need his sins forgiven. But we do, and he committed himself to us to be able to live on our behalf, to be able to live as fully in our place as possible, right? And so he enters into that relationship with us through baptism and then immediately goes out and faces the devil on our behalf as our champion. And here's the, the problem that humanity has faced ever since the garden when the devil and Eve, the first woman, they went at it together and humanity failed, and humanity has lost that battle every single time until right then, until the time was fulfilled. Right? When Jesus Christ, in our place, went out toe-to-toe -to -toe with the devil for 40 days hungry, and he beat him. And that was, that was humanity's victory, ultimate victory over the devil. Right? And Jesus did it for you. That's what kind of person he is. That's what kind of God we have. The God who would take our flesh to himself, reveal himself to us for our relationship, unite us to himself through that baptism, and then do everything that we, we should have done, that we fail at, did it in our place. And then ultimately he did it at the cross as he suffered and died in our place. Right? That's the gospel. That's reality. That's the way things really are. That's the kingdom of God. Uh, and the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus says, because the king has come. The kingdom of God is near in the person of its king. And so um, this is the reality that we need to sink in before we'll be able to really truly repent. It has to win us. It has to be this attractive vision of what God's kingdom is really like. Karl Barth says that the kingdom of heaven does exist already. From God's side, action has already been taken for our good. To pronounce the name of Jesus Christ means to acknowledge that we are cared for, that we are not lost. So faith 
in that good news is what activates true repentance. Um, so Jack Miller is another quote at the beginning of the bulletin. Um, Jack Miller says that our repenting should be as daily and delightful as our eating. Grace gives us that kind of joy. Because when you're turning away from sin and misery and death and the, the failure of humanity and your own failure and brokenness, you're turning away from that to Jesus Christ, that's joy in front of you. Grace gives you joy. And that repentance, that kind of repentance should be delightful. It's the freedom and joy of true grace-based repentance. Repentance is a good thing. It really is a good thing. It's not easy, but it's good. Um, because it basically says you've been going the wrong way, but times of refreshing, they're in that direction. God has got times of refreshing for you in that direction in Christ. Sure, repentance can be characterized sometimes by sorrow. There's sorrow when you're looking back, uh, but there's joy when, you look, when you're looking ahead. So 2 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about this a little bit. He says, godly grief, it's grief, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The kind of grief that is integrated into true repentance, at some point that grief will be left behind, and there won't be any more regret because you're going towards the one who's cleansed your conscience He's made you righteous through his sacrifice. Um, That direction is life. No more regret. So maybe sorrow when looking back, but joy when looking forward. Um, And so this is a process. This is a a general trajectory of our lives, uh, individually, but especially as a a corporate entity in the church. Uh, There's there's flux, fluctuation in this. It's not kind of a straight line of growth, like, hey, I'm better at repenting every day than I was the day before. I'm I'm holier, I'm better, I'm uh, more righteous every day. it's, it's not like that. It's just this constant turning that needs to take place. We need to learn and relearn a lot of times the same things over and over again. It's really basic stuff. Really basic stuff that God is good, that he loves you. He sent his son Jesus for you. You've got to hear that and you've got to apply it over and over again. Um, and we're all on the way with this trajectory of repentance. We're all on the way to ultimate complete conversion That'll happen when we see Christ face to face will be made like him once and for all. It'll be complete. That conversion will be complete. No, no more repentance necessary, right? We're on the way to that. Now, I wish we could say that Christ-likeness was what characterized our community. You know, Ascension's basic character would be Christ-likeness, but it's not. It's that turning. It's that turning from, uh, from sin to God. It's the, the transition. We are people on the way. Right? There's a trajectory here, and we're on that way. Um, so, for example, <clears throat> the things that we talk about on a regular basis, um, if your sin is being self-sufficient, maybe you didn't know that was a sin, right? Um, maybe it strikes you as odd that well, self-sufficiency, independence, isn't that good, right? Isn't that healthy? Um, well, God says there's a there's certainly a way in which self-sufficiency is not good for you. 
It is, it is sin. It is rebellion against God. It's autonomy from God. Um, <clears throat> self-sufficient people don't enjoy a sense of dependency on God. Right? And uh, they want the esteem of others for being somebody who's got their life all together. Right? The Bible says a lot of things about uh, the kind of people who are self-sufficient and proud of it, but the gospel says, no, you know what? It's actually good to be dependent on God. You were made for that. And Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, is dependent on his Father, and he became a human being, and fully, as, just as one of us would, dependent on God for everything. In our place, he did that. And now, he's the king of the universe. Doesn't, you don't get more exalted than that. And as the king of the universe, he still relies on his father. He's still in that kind of a relationship with his father where he's dependent and he's submissive. But it's beautiful and it's good and it's majestic and kingly. The king of the universe is dependent. The one who humbled himself has been exalted in all glory. And so there's a real freedom through faith in Christ, as you become more like him, as you enter into that kind of reality, there's a real freedom to be dependent on God because you're made for that, right? It's like the, the fishbowl analogy. It's like the fish is made to swim in water. If the fish wants its independence and says, I'd do better in alcohol than water, it's, no, it's not going to last very long. You got your way, right? But that's not good for you. You were made for water. Right? And, and we're made to be dependent on God, not self-sufficient, um, and, and there's a freedom, there's a real freedom according to our nature as those who are created for uh, this kind of relationship with God. We're made for it, and so there's a real freedom in returning to it through the gospel. Things like just strel- uh, your stress melts away, right? If you're not having to be constantly in control of all the circumstances of your life, stress goes away because you've given that over to your Heavenly Father who takes care of you, right? Um, or another example, um, sin, uh, perfectionistic parenting. Right? There's a lot of us here who are parents. Probably a lot of us are, are at least tempted to wish that we were perfect parents. Right? That, uh, I think a th- thing I saw on Facebook uh, maybe just last night was um, <clears throat> the thing I want as a parent, the thing I want for my children is that they wouldn't have to recover from their childhood. <laughs> right? That's all I want. So my kid isn't totally maimed by me, that they wouldn't have to recover from their childhood. But the reality, I mean, we've messed up our kids because they're like us, and we're like our parents, and they're like theirs. We're all like our first parents. We're all broken, right? None of us are perfect. Nobody's going to get through this thing unscathed. We need to acknowledge that. We're just wrong. We don't need to control our environment. We don't need to control our children's lives. Sometimes we can't bear to be thought of as bad parents, what if somebody sees me losing it with my kids? Or what if somebody looks at my kids and they're little monsters and, uh, and that reflects badly on me, right? Can't stand that. So we try harder. We've got to fix the world around us. Um, but the gospel says, no, you, you shouldn't do that. You can't do that. You should stop trying that. God's in control, though. Somebody is in, in control and he's good. He's better than you. Right? God's in control. His plans are better than yours. He loves your kids more than you do. He really does. He loves them better. He's given his son's life for them. 
And your reputation in his sight, it's not based on your success as a parent or your failure as a parent. Your reputation in God's sight, he, he perfectly accepts you. He wholeheartedly accepts you and calls you beloved because he sees you in his son, Jesus Christ. That's it. That's your reputation in God's sight is Christ's reputation in God's sight. Right? Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. It means you can stop living in order to control your reputation. You don't have to do that. That's, every ounce of your life energy doesn't have to be spent on being the perfect parent, fixing your kids so that you'll feel better. Right? Um, and you can start living with the real freedom to actually love your kids. Actually love them. Actually give yourself to them instead of just shaping and making demands on them for your own sake. Um, we could go on and on uh, showing you how your life is full of the bad things that you need to stop doing or uh, the good things that you need to start doing or ways that you need to start doing those good things differently than you've been doing them, right, for different reasons, different motives, aligning differently with God's uh, kingdom. We could go on and on applying basically just the gospel of God's grace to our brokenness in a way that changes our lives. That's what we're talking about. But we do that... Um, every week. That's what we're always talking about around here. Repentance and faith characterize us, never perfectly, um, but deliberately and consistently. Sometimes it's hard to believe, it's hard to understand how God's way is better than our way, but it is, and that's the foundation for our repentance. <clears throat> Otherwise, repentance just seems like a soul-crushing burden and God a killjoy, but he's not. He's not out to make your life miserable. He's out to make you like his glorious son, Jesus Christ, and there's no greater goal, no greater privilege than that. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, you are glorious. Jesus Christ, you are glorious. And Holy Spirit, you are glorious. And life with you is good. And we thank you that you've made us for life with you and that uh, even though we've rebelled against you and chosen a life apart from you and still do, even as Christians uh, on a daily basis, choose to live life apart from you, live life our own way according to our own version of reality, you, nevertheless, uh, you won't stand for that. And you've called us and you've done everything necessary to bring us back. And, um, and so for that, we are thankful. We don't deserve your love to us through Jesus. But we do find him uh, beautiful and a vision of him compelling. And your kingdom is good. And because it is near in the person of Jesus Christ, we want to turn away from uh, our own ways and turn toward him. Because it's the way of life and goodness and blessing. And so we pray that you would help us, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, um, make that a reality in our lives more and more. Just constantly um, making us okay with how, uh, how wrong we are in our expectations but um, even more so, uh, uh, making us okay with your grace to us in a way that frees us to choose you, frees us to live with you, frees us to want to be with you. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.